you will be turning your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're kind of studying our way through the book. I told you I may not go verse by verse. We may skip around some, but I have yet to find a reason to skip anything. It's all, it's all so good. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. I have loved everything about our service this morning, the singing, that last song, I love it, Steve. Um, all of our lives, God has been faithful. That's really, the, that's really the story of the Bible. That is the story of all of the scriptures, is that God is faithful. He has been in the past, and he will be uh, in the present and in the future. God is faithful. So we're, uh, we're looking at the book of Hebrews this morning. I have I've been waiting for this all week long. Sunday is my favorite day of the week. I get to be with you guys. I don't know if I've told you this lately or not, but I love you. I love this church. I love God's church, wherever they're meeting this morning. But I really love the Northside body, and I love to be with you. And I've been looking forward all week long to singing praises and to, to, to gather around the table, to, to open the Bible and study. Um, I've just been looking forward to this. And so um, let's, let's dive into the book of Hebrews this morning. Um, in a way, just to um, remind you, the book of Hebrews is the book of better things. Fifteen times in the book, uh, the Hebrew writer uses the word better or superior. This is the book of better things. Um, we're going to compare that uh, to Moses. And the reason that the writer wrote this letter to these ancient Christians is because they needed some encouragement. For whatever reason, uh, either through persecution or, or struggling with their commitment to Christ, there was this pull, there was this tug on them to go backwards, to go back to Moses uh, to, to throw off their commitment to Christ and to, and to do something different. So this is an ancient encouragement to these people, and it is so relevant to us today. It is so relevant, and I think that's why we need to, to, to pour over these scriptures and to look once again. Uh, the title this morning is, Who's the Greatest? Who is the Greatest? I started thinking about that this past week. Who's the Greatest? whatever, you know, and I began to think about some different things. Some of you may, there you go, some of you may recognize this picture. I like to play golf. I'm not very good, and I went for years and years um, without playing, and it wasn't until I moved here last summer uh, in the fall that um, Steve Eldridge and some of the guys got me out back on the course, and, um, and I love the game. It's an evil, wicked game at times. Uh, I think it was created uh, to bring shame upon us and to make us want to throw our clubs in the lake because we're not very good. But these guys were really, really good. Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, the guy on the far right, Sam Sneed. Uh, these are some golfers from, from years past that you would remember. Who's the greatest? A lot of folks would say that one of these two guys was the greatest golfer of all time, 
And that's always up for debate because you say, well, this guy played in a different era, and, and things are different now, so it's hard to compare. But that's what we do, isn't it? We, we compare things. We say, well, this guy's greater, and we say, no, he's not. This guy was greater. Well, based upon what? You see, we're always doing that. Um, some of you guys may remember this young man. And can I just say that some men are more attractive than others? You know, I, I don't know why, but, but uh, Larry Bird hailed from uh, not too far from here, right? French Lick, Indiana. I didn't know Larry Bird uh, in his college days, but uh, he went on to play for uh, the Boston Celtics. And that's one of the reasons why I love the Boston Celtics, because Larry Bird played for them. When I watched the championship game, I think it was 1979, Indiana State, Michigan State, 78 or 79, when they played, I just fell in love uh, with Larry Bird. And in, in my mind, he is one of the greatest. Is he the greatest basketball player of all time? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. It depends on what aspect of the game. Surely, the greatest basketball player has got to be one of these three guys, right? I mean, it's got to come. It's got to be narrowed down to these three. Well, it depends on who you're talking to. What about Bill Russell or, or Will Chamberlain or, or some of those guys back in even before these guys play? What about the guys now? So athletic, so strong, so big. Who's the greatest? How would you even narrow that down? So I began to think about another guy. Anybody remember this guy? Um, he um, he hails from hailed from Louisville, Kentucky. Am I right? Um, many Golden Gloves that he won in Kentucky. I think in 1960 he won the Olympic um, gold medal as the heavyweight boxer. 1960, and I think throughout his career uh, he held the heavyweight title, I think, three different occasions. Um, many said he was the greatest of all time. And if you asked him, he would tell you that of himself. I am the greatest of all time. In fact, that's what many think, and that's what he called himself the greatest. Was he the greatest boxer of all time, Muhammad Ali? Well, maybe he was. Depends on who you ask. Who's the greatest quarterback? Well, if you just go by Super Bowls, that would be one thing. But I think there have been some fantastic quarterbacks who've never won a Super Bowl, right? So who's the greatest? I asked my daughter the other day, I said, who's the greatest singer? She said, well, it depends. Depends on what style of music, what genre that you're, that you're talking about. This person sings this style of music better, but, but they couldn't sing that style. So who's the greatest? How do we know? Well, so much of that is subjective. What our writer this morning is going to do, as we look at chapter 3, he's going to talk about who's the greatest. And really, there is no, <laughs> there is no comparison here. Um, uh, everything else falls short, Okay. This is one thing I think we can hang our hat on and say that, that Jesus is the greatest. Let, let's read through some of the text, and then we'll go back and make some comments. Hebrews chapter 3, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix 
your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was, a faith, was faithful as a servant in, in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. And so the Hebrew writer says, therefore, and you remember what, what I've said in weeks past, um, anytime a therefore, you see a therefore, you, can, you need to pause and, and say, what is that therefore? Well, everything that he's just got through saying at the end of chapter 2, that's, what it, that's, where he's, that's where this door is swinging here. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus became one of us so that he could free us for all of our lives from this fear of this slavery, the fear of death. He says, verse 17 of chapter 2, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. And because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, because all of that is true, he says, holy brothers, that's us, that's them, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. This is not just some you know, brief thing that you, you, you think about Jesus, like we, like we did here at the table. We, we gather around the table and we fix our thoughts on Jesus and, okay, the Lord's Supper's over with, so we're done with that. On to other things. No, the Hebrew writer is, is telling them to, to consider Jesus. Maybe your, your version says to consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on him. Spend much time thinking about him. Loving him. What has he done for you? Ponder those things in your mind and in your heart. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confessed. Jesus was an apostle? I thought he called 12 men to be his apostles. The word apostle, as he uses it here, just simply means one who is sent. That's really what the the Greek word means, apostolos, someone who is sent for a purpose. And that's what Jesus uh, was sent to do, and Jesus accomplished that. And he became our high priest, whom we confess. Maybe your version says, whom we profess. In a crowd this size, no doubt that there are those who have made a profession with their mouths but it's never really, it's never been professed from their hearts. That, I think, is, is, is part of what the Hebrew writer is dealing with. No doubt there were people that professed Jesus as Savior and Lord. They confessed him with their mouths, but now, that, now there's some sort of pull for them to turn away from him. 
And they've made that profession. They've made the confession with their mouths, but somehow it never translated into their hearts. And that's what he's writing to combat. Oh, we've got to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Look at verse 2. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. You know, often too, too many times in our world, uh, when someone tries to elevate themselves, they do so by trying to cut somebody else down. Have you ever seen that? Maybe you've been tempted to do that. In order to, to make ourselves feel better or higher, we feel like sometimes we need to cut somebody else down to size. Well, when we do that, uh, that really says a whole lot more about us than it does the other person. But the Hebrew writer doesn't do that. He doesn't have to do anything to make Jesus better. In fact, what he does is he's elevating Moses. He's elevating Moses. Who, who would have been the greatest prophet in the eyes of Israel? Would it not have been Moses? Moses was, was everything. Now, you had Father Abraham. You know, Father Abraham, he had, he had many sons, right? So Father Abraham was, was where it all started. That's where God took a man of faith and he, and he set him apart. And through him, he was going to bless all nations. Through Abraham and his seed, the seed being Jesus, God was going to bless all nations. So that's where it began. But as a prophet in all of Israel, nobody was greater than Moses. We got through reading there in chapter 2. It was through Moses and through angels that God gave his law to the people. All of Israel was governed by the law of Moses. So in their minds, Moses was the greatest prophet. And in fact, it was in their mind that when the, when the new Messiah would come, when this appointed Messiah would finally come, in their minds would restore Israel to its national prominence, they thought, that the new Messiah would reenact many of the things that Moses had done. They were looking for that Messiah to be this new Moses, the one who led the children out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. That's what the new Messiah was going to do for them in their minds. And if you read through, especially the Gospel of John, when you, you read through, you see this, this connection with Moses time and time and time again with with many of the miracles, and, and John really bases his, his, um, his argument around the feasts, and you see this time and time again throughout the book of John, uh, it was basically a reenactment of Moses. When Moses fed the 5,000, that was just like when, uh, when Moses, when Jesus fed the 5,000, y'all are with me, right? When Jesus fed the 5,000, that was sort of a reenactment of, of the manna that God used to feed the children of Israel. Um, we, we don't have time to go into that. But they were looking for a, a Messiah just like Moses. And so the Hebrew writer, he doesn't have to, to cut Moses down. He elevates Moses, and he says he was faithful in all of God's house. He did everything that God had appointed him to do. Verse 3, but Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. See, he elevates Moses 
to a, to a, to a great high place where, where he belonged. But Jesus is greater than that. He's far superior than Moses. Why? Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. We don't just gaze at the brick and the mortar. We, we, we give praise and honor to the one who built the house, who, who drew up the plans for that house. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. The, the Hebrew writer here is, is in, a, in a roundabout way, he's, he's equating Jesus with God. We've seen that in the past. Jesus, nothing was created that wasn't created by Jesus. By him and for him and through him, for his pleasure. And so now he says, every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. We know that Jesus was the word and he was with God and he was God. So who's the builder of everything? Jesus. When in doubt, say Jesus. You'll be right most of the time. Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Now look, Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house. But Christ, look at verse 6, but Christ is faithful as a son as a son over God's house. The servant could never be over the son. The servant could never be greater than the son. As faithful and as awesome as Moses was to do what God had appointed him to do, he was just a servant in the house. But Jesus is a son over the house. And look at this. And we are his house we are his house. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the house? It's very plain, I think, what the Hebrew writers, he's writing to those Christians who need encouragement. He's telling them, we are, we are this house that I'm talking about. You are, I am. And today, that's us. The assembly, the assembling of the saints, the called out, the church. We are his house. Look at what Paul said. This is Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. You see, we as the church, now individually, when you become a member of of God's family, when you are buried with Christ in baptism, the Bible says that you're are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? But here, Paul is talking about collectively, as a body of people, not just individuals, but as a whole, plural, you, plural, are being built into this temple where God's Spirit lives, where God's Spirit dwells. You are the household 
of God. This is the way Peter wrote it. One more time. First Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but Jesus is a son over the entire house. And we, you, me, we are that house, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about honoring God with our bodies, not, not being involved in sin. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Because we are that household of God. We honor God with our bodies. We are a temple of praise. And so now, let's pick up in verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is from Psalm 95. We, we talked about over the last couple of weeks that the Hebrew writer basically uses four key psalms to... Uh, depict the life of Jesus. The first one was Psalm chapter 8. Now he uses Psalm chapter 95. And you, this should be very familiar. We're studying uh, the, the book of Exodus in one of the classes on Sunday morning. And so the psalmist is writing about, uh, about that very thing. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. When Moses led the children of Egypt, the, the children of Israel out of Egypt, he brings them, uh, as soon as they get out, they, they, they come to the Red Sea, and they look behind them, and there are the chariots and the horses. They're being pursued, and they're thinking to themselves, oh my, we've been led out just so we can get killed right here before the sea because we can't pass. We're stuck here. What does God do? He uses Moses, he raises his staff, and what happens? The waters part. The Bible says that they walked across on dry ground. And as they're going through, they're reaching the end, the Egyptians are, are hot on their tails. They're, they're, the horses, the chariots, there they come. They're riding, they're following the exact same path that the children of Israel have just escaped through. And then when they all get into the, to the, to the sea, what happens? God washes the water over them, kills them, and they look back, and they've been saved. Had it not been for the Lord who was on our side, we would have perished. 
You think that of all people, the children that had been led out of Egyptian bondage, day after day after day, time after time, they saw the power of God. They saw his handiwork. They saw the miracles. They ate the manna. They ate the quail. Where did this stuff come from? Every morning, God just showers them with bread to feast to feast upon, and they weren't satisfied, so he gives them quail. Time and time again, they're, they're thirsty. God gives water from the rock. Over and over and over again, they saw the miracles. They saw God's leading, but they rebelled against him. They did not trust him to provide for them tomorrow. They saw his power today, but they didn't trust him to continue to care for them in the future. And so the reason, and we'll read this at the end of the chapter, the reason that they were not allowed into Canaan, into the promised land, was not because of sin. It was because of their unbelief. The, the doors of Canaan were shut to them, not because they they messed up or they made a mistake. It was because of their unbelief. You see, we all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. But if we're in Christ Jesus, the Bible says there's no condemnation, right? We're not condemned when we sin. We, we will not be sent to hell because of our sinfulness. We'll be sent to hell because of our unbelief. Does that make sense to you? Unbelief definitely is sin. Let, let, let me describe it to you this way. Uh, I have a, a loved one that I love very dearly who's not a child of God. And, and as you know from, from personal experience, it is so difficult to reach our own family. Is it not? Isn't it? Why is it so difficult to talk to, to mom and dad and brother and sister and cousin? Why, why is it so hard to talk to them? Maybe it's because they know us. Maybe it's because they know us. But I was, I was speaking to my loved one, and I said, I said, listen, I want you to be in heaven with me. The only way that that can happen is you have to believe in Jesus. You have to trust him. You have to, to be willing to turn away from your sin and to give your life to Jesus Christ, to be buried with him in baptism. I say, you know, the, you know a lot of the things that I've done. You know the things that I've done that are wrong. And I know a lot of things that you have done that are wrong. But the difference in us is that I have hope. Not because I'm any better than you are. Not because I'm, I'm good. But because Jesus is good. Because of what he's done for me. And because I have put my faith in him and I've trusted in him, and I've been baptized into him. He's washed all my sins away. I'm not any better than you. But, but because that I have this belief and this faith, I have hope. Whereas you don't have any hope. And that breaks my heart. You see, all those people that wandered for 40 years, Bodies strewn all across the desert as a testimony to their unbelief. They weren't kept from the promised land because they made mistakes, because they, because they sinned from time to time. 
they were prevented from going in because of their unbelief. They would not trust that the great God, the great provider, would continue to provide and to lead. They did not trust him. And because of that, every one of them died in the desert, except for Joshua and Caleb. Do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. And let me say this. Some, you know, we, we fall in love with these little trite, pithy sayings. Uh, all my life I've heard, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Have you heard that saying? God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. God loves us all unconditionally. I don't believe that those things are true. And, and I can be wrong, okay? I reserve the right to be wrong. God was angry with these people because of their unbelief. He was angry, and he said, I swore on oath in my anger that they would never enter my rest. Yes, every human being that walks the planet is made in the image of God. And because of that, they are precious and they are valuable. But make no mistake, God is storing up his wrath. The wrath of God is being stored up against all of those who will not believe. God is not happy with those who do not believe in him. God is not pleased. God, you say God loves us all unconditionally. No, he doesn't. He loves us when we put our faith in him and our trust in him, when we obey him and we trust him. We trust and obey. God loves us because we are his children. You say, God, God doesn't love everybody? Yes, he does in the sense that he gave his son. He's not willing that any should perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. But if you are in willful disobedience to God, God does not love you unconditionally. His love is conditioned on your faith in him. Is that true or not? Let's chew on it. Let's chew on that. Verse 12, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. This is what he's writing to those Christians who were, who were looking to go back to Moses or to fall away to turn away from Christ. They, they were tempted to not trust in Jesus as the perfect Savior. To turn away from that, back to something else. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Brothers and sisters, this is going to become so much more important to us in the future than maybe it has in the near present or the past. 
Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. When is it called today? When is it not called today? Maybe that's a better question. Can you encourage someone yesterday? No. How about tomorrow? Well, you can, but when tomorrow gets here, guess what? It's today. So he says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. How long is that? It's always today, right now. Encourage each other. And this is going to become so important as the days turn into weeks and months and in the coming years for us to be a community of faith that encourages one another. Our world does not follow God. We should not expect our world to do godly Christian things because they are not following him. But what, what blows my mind is that there are people who profess to follow Christ, who profess to love God and want to be pleasing to him, and yet they are being pulled away by the world. They're, they're following the world's lead on, on a lot of different things that we, that we could talk about, but we won't this morning. And so it is incumbent upon us to be in each other's lives, to be a community of faith, to sit around each other's kitchen tables, to sit in one another's living rooms, and to pray together, and to study together. Uh, this is a plug for our small groups, Timothy. Some of you are not involved in small groups. We love you, but, but you need to be in small groups because we need to be in each other's lives. Why? So that we can encourage each other. So that we can say to one another, don't give up. Don't let the world sway you. Don't believe what, you're he but what you hear on TV or what you read on the internet. That is not of God. This is of God. God's word is truth. This is where we've got to put our hope and our trust. This is where we've got to make our stand. Don't give up. And, this, and that's how we're going to love each other, by being a community that is so tightly connected that we can love each other and encourage each other through the hard times. And the hard times are coming. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to be a naysayer. I don't want to be a, you know, a Debbie Downer. But hard times are coming. And we've got to be in each other's lives to the point where we know each other and we love each other and we can pray for each other and encourage each other daily as long as it is called today so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ. And here, this is, here's a divine if. A divine if. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. Will we share in Christ if we don't hold to that confidence? No. No. Did God still love you enough to send his son to die for you? Yes. That's how much God loved you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves every one of us. But we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. And then he repeats, just as it has been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. 
And now he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So, we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. God is so loving. God is so patient. Do I have something else up here? Oh, yes, I love that. God is so kind and loving and patient with us. In fact, he is long-suffering with us. Those of us who have faith in him, who trust in him. The Bible says, if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's 1 John chapter 1, right? If we are faithful... We don't have to be perfect, but we're striving. We're holding on to this confidence, this name that we have confessed, that we have professed to believe in. And if we will walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us of all of our sin. 1 John chapter 1 again. So that's for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. If we hold firmly to the confidence. But if we say, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if, if Jesus is really the perfect sacrifice. I don't know if God is, you know, is, is who I want to follow. If we turn away from that, that's what he said back in chapter 2. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? We will not. Just as God was angry with those people in the desert for 40 years, he said, they will not enter my rest. We're going to talk more about that rest next time when I, uh, when I preach. But our time is up. Jesus, it's all about Jesus. He's a faithful high priest. He is advocating for us right now before the Father. He's confessing our names. He's saying, they believe in me. They're not condemned. Don't hold, don't hold anything against them. And the Father says, forgiven. Where else can you get a deal like that? Somebody tell me. Where else can you get a deal like that? Only in Jesus. I wish we could live our lives as well as we sing. We're going to sing a song, All to Jesus I Surrender. Isn't that the song? All to Jesus I surrender. Man, I wish that were true of my life. I'm, I, I want it to be. I'm striving for it to be. Have I surrendered everything? God help us to just to give him everything so that he can fill us up with his spirit and we can be the men and women that he's called us to be.